Today we finish up, as I said, in James 5. We're looking at verses 13 to 20. And I'll be reading today from the New American Standard Version. James chapter 5, verses 13 to 20. This is what James writes. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous person can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. My brothers and sisters, if anyone among you strays from the truth, and one turns them back, let him know that whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death, and will cover a multitude of sins. James has been a very action-oriented book, and I read this week that there are more imperatives, meaning more commands, in the book of James per word than any other book in the New Testament. Quite a statement. James is constantly calling us to action. And I sent out in the teaching teaser this week that in just eight short verses, we find seven commands um, to pray, how important that, that topic of prayer is. But let me read again for you what the literal Greek of verses 13 to 16 sounds like so you can get a, a feel for all of the 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 commands, all of the things that we must do. James says, Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? Then he must sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they must pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, you must confess your sins to one another, and you must pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous person can accomplish much. We see that James is not giving us this good advice or suggestions. He's issuing charges. He's issuing commands. As we found from the very first chapter in James, James is not content to just allow us to be hearers of the word, those who listen to God's truth and do nothing about it. James says in chapter 1, that's like a person that looks at their reflection in the mirror and sees what needs attending to and then walks away and does nothing about it. But James says in chapter 1, verse 22, prove yourself, <coughs> excuse me, prove yourselves doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. With this in mind, it's interesting to note that James doesn't conclude his letter with greetings and benedictions like so many uh, other New Testament letters, um, but rather he calls us again to action. And his closing is more typical of one of the formal New Testament letters. Like, uh, it kind of reads like a published sermon, kind of like First John. First John closes chapter 5, verse 21, by John saying, Little children, guard yourselves from idols. Kind of an odd way to close a letter, but he's emphasizing what is 
of utmost importance, what is very near and dear to his heart. And in a similar way, James closes by saying that the effective prayer of a righteous person can accomplish much. After all that he's said and all that he's tried to communicate to us, that final call to action that he leaves for us has to do with prayer. As I said, it's mentioned seven times in eight short verses. And in the first verse of our passage, verse 13, we find uh, our first command, and that is to pray. That's your fill in the blank on your outline if you're taking notes. He says in verse 13, if anyone among you is suffering, then they must pray. We are called to prayer over and over again throughout the New Testament and especially in James. And as we read the whole passage in James, the command to pray is both personal and corporate. We are to pray in our personal, private lives. We're also to pray corporately as a church body. Earlier in chapter 5, verse 6, James talked about the suffering that some of the believers were going through because of how the rich who were manipulative and and evil were treating them. And throughout the letter, he's dealt with trials. And whenever he talks about trials, his encouragement to us has been to endure the trial with the right spirit and with the right attitude, having a divine, divinely historical perspective. Chapter 1 is, is a good example of that. James said in chapter 1, Consider it all joy, my brothers and sisters when you encounter trials of various kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Then he says, and let that endurance have its perfect effect upon you, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so here again, he's asking for us to endure trials with the right frame of mind and with the right attitude. And from this perspective, we can presume that as he's encouraging us to pray, He's encouraging us to pray for the strength to endure trials with a godly spirit. Not necessarily for God to deliver us from the trials, but for us to have strength to endure them and to exhibit the right godly spirit in the midst of them. Those verbs for the words pray and sing in verse 13 are in the continuous present tense. And it has the idea or the effect that we are to continually pray. And we are to continually sing praises and be thankful as we go through life. This is a regular part of our lifestyle. It's not something that we do once in a while when we're in crisis, but it's the way that we're to live our life. And it's very similar to what Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 17 and 18, when he said, Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. We're always wondering what God's will is. What, what's God's will for me today? Where am I supposed to go to lunch today? How am I supposed to spend my summer? You know, how am I supposed to use this money that I have? Uh, whatever the decision is. But really, as we read Scripture, God's primary will for us is obedience. Because when we obey Him and do what He says, we will make the right decisions. And sometimes... In obedience, there is no wrong decision if we're obeying him and following him. That's the most important thing. But we so often want to reduce God's will to a choice or a decision. And many times it is, but the point is that that choice and that decision flows out of a life of obedience and submission. And that's what God wants us to know, and that's what James and Paul want us to know. God's will is that we 
pray without ceasing, that we talk to Him throughout our day, that we have a conversation, a dialogue with Him in everything, and that in all things we give thanks. In every situation and circumstance, we find a reason to be grateful and to have gratitude. Well, the next command is in verse 14, and it's the call, the command to, to call. Uh, verse 14 says, Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. That verb call uh, in the original language has the idea of calling unto, calling someone to your aid or to your assistance. And it, it means that the person who was sick most likely was in bed. They were debilitated. They were immobilized. And they didn't have the luxury or the ability to go to the elders personally. And so they were asking the elders to come to them for prayer. And please understand that there's nothing magical about the prayer of an elder. It's not that they pronounce magical words or say just the right thing. And it's not that God hears them any more than he hears any one of us because they somehow seem to be more righteous than the average person or because of their office or their title. He, he's asking elders to come and to pray, and he's challenging us and commanding us to, to request the elders to come because that's what elders do. The role of elders is to be incarnational, just like Christ, to go to where people are, to go to where the need is. And it's really more of an, a matter of obedience and, and faithfulness to one's call uh, that God honors and rewards. James isn't denying that some people in the church, maybe a number of people in the church, might have the spiritual gift of healing. But apart from that, he's saying specifically that those charged with pastoral oversight need to be active in praying for the healing of the body, the healing of its members. We see the prominent role of elders in the book of Acts, and we see a description of the office of eldership in the pastoral epistles in Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. And it reveals that elders were spiritually mature men who guided the spiritual development of the local congregations in, in the early church. And the Apostle Paul charges these elders in Acts 20, verse 28, with these words. He says, Be on guard for yourselves and also for the flock, for all of the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. That word in the Greek is episkopos. It's where we get the word bishop or overseer or elder. To shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Elders and pastors are charged with shepherding the church of God because Jesus Christ gave his blood, his life, for the church. And it's an awesome and daunting responsibility and challenge. But that's what elders and pastors are supposed to do. They are supposed to shepherd the flock of God and to pray for the needs of the saints. And so the picture here in verse 14 is of the elders praying over the sick person who is in their bed and the Lord intervening to raise that person up from that bed. The phrase praying over that we see in the text also seems to be New Testament shorthand for the laying on of hands. That it was very common for the elders or for church officials to lay their hands on the people as they would pray over them. Now there's a number of related issues that come up when we look at this verse. 
in terms of healing, in terms of anointing with oil. It raises a lot of questions. And we know that Calvin and Luther and other theologians, other expositors, thought that the practice of anointing with oil along with the power to heal was reserved for the apostolic age, meaning that was just for the first and second century. But that's not really for today. And yet, as you read Scripture, there doesn't seem to be a time limit on that. And as we look around the world today, we still hear and see miracles and healings. And so our church has taken the position that um, we're not dispensational in the sense that those things were just for that dispensational of time and that God doesn't work in that way today. We, we believe that God still heals. God still performs miracles. And it's not because of magical words that we pronounce. And it's not because of any sense of entitlement that we have to be able to say something and God is obligated to fulfill whatever it is we say. But we are called, as, as we believe in Scripture, to pray with faith, believing that God still has the power and He's still able. And he can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. It wasn't reserved to back then. It's not reserved to now. It's for all times. And so our position as a church is that we want to pray for healing. We want to pray for miracles. It's one of the reasons why we started our our healing service on uh, the first Sunday of each month over a year ago. Uh, The first Sunday of each month at 6 o'clock in the evening, we gather as a church and pray for the needs of our own body as well as the needs of the community. And we pray specifically for healing and for miracles, that God would do things that don't seem possible because God is not limited. And we don't ever pray knowing what he'll do because we don't presume to know the mind of God. But we do pray in faith, believing that he has the power and that he still works that way today. Now, there's a number of related issues with respect to anointing with oil as well. It seems to have been a common practice for the early church. It seems to be the pattern and the model that Christ Christ left for his disciples in the Gospels. We see in Mark 6, verse 13 in particular, that it said, and the disciples were casting out many demons and were anointing many with oil who were sick and were healing them. And so it seems to be just their MO that that's when they would pray over people, they would anoint with oil. In Luke chapter 10, when we read about the parable of the Good Samaritan, um, among other things, it said that he bandaged the, the beaten man's wounds, pouring on oil and wine. That this was a common practice in the first century. Uh, oil was widely used in the ancient world as both a skin conditioner and as medicine. And some of the historians tell us that they believed that people in the ancient times believed that it was useful for everything from a toothache to actually curing paralysis. There was a doctor in the second century that had many different documentations of anointing with oil and and people being raised out of paralysis. And so considering this background, it may be that James is urging, urging the elders and the pastors of the church to come alongside the person in bed who's sick, both with spiritual and natural resources, both with prayer and with medicine. Symbolically, Anointing with oil is signifying that whoever it is that we're praying over, we are consecrating them, setting them apart to God for his special care and his special attention. And we're requesting, we're pleading with God that God answer in healing and um, 
in restoring them to health. Well, the third action step on your outline in, in the passage doesn't come as a direct command, but it does present itself as an underlying assumption throughout our text. And that is the command to believe. The command to believe. I see that in verse 15. James says, And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. A literal translation is, And the prayer of faith will restore the one who is sick. I know sometimes preachers, pastors make a big deal out of this call for faith, particularly insisting that believers... Um, have enough faith for a miracle or a healing to take place. And it's almost like a scapegoat if healing does not take place, that the pastor or the preacher can blame the person for not believing enough or not being strong enough in their faith. But it's really extremely unbiblical to to do that and to say that. And as I said, it's usually just to kind of defer the blame or the, the lack of a miracle or a healing taking place. I've told you many times about our friends in Santa Barbara growing up. Uh, the Davenports, their oldest daughter, was born with spina bifida, where she was paralyzed from the waist down and confined to a wheelchair. And the Davenports went to a lot of great churches over the years, and many of those churches had amazing radio broadcast ministries. And if I was to name those churches and those pastors, you would recognize them and say, yeah, that was a solid church. And over the years, many elders and leaders from those churches came to pray over Laura, that she might be healed. And healing never took place. It was never God's will, will to heal her. And unfortunately, so many times as they would leave, they would cast the blame back on Skip and Ingrid and say, well, if you had had more faith, maybe something would have taken place, or if you have more faith in the future. And long story short, Ingrid ended up taking her life after many years, because she couldn't live with the guilt and the shame and the blame of having a child who she thought was that way because of her and her lack of faith. And I would say that that's absolutely toxic. That's absolutely unbiblical. The point is not, like I said, the magical pronouncement of words or that you and I have some super faith that, that casts away all doubt. But the point is that we have faith in God's ability to do whatever He wants, whenever He wants. That we have faith that He is not limited in His power or His resources to heal. And so we pray, not knowing how He will respond or how He will act, but we pray in faith, believing. Because when we pray that way and when we, when we anoint people and pray for healing, if they don't get healed, at least we have the peace of mind of knowing that we prayed. And that we lifted them to the Lord. It's in His hands at that point. It's clear in the New Testament that it wasn't always God's will that people be healed. And that's where we at CBC kind of uh, depart ways with many charismatic churches. There are a number of charismatic churches that believe that God's will is that everybody be healed. And I, I just find that hard to hold as we read Scripture. You, you take Paul himself, who had a thorn in the flesh, and prayed repeatedly that God would deliver him from that. And yet God never answered the Apostle Paul with physical healing. And I don't think it was a lack of faith on the, on the part of Paul. But God did answer Paul with fresh insight uh, as to that infirmity. And Paul would proclaim that he heard the Lord say that God's strength was perfected in his weakness. 
And so Paul went on to say, most gladly, therefore, will I boast in my infirmities and my weaknesses, because when I am weak, then God's power is perfected and made strong. I would say personally in my own life that through weakness and infirmity, I've seen God work in some of the most powerful ways that I've ever witnessed. And though I haven't appreciated or enjoyed the experience of suffering or being weak, it has been amazing to see God at work. Another passage that's often referred to is the blind man in John chapter 9, where the disciples came to Jesus and they said, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would would be born blind? Because that was the common presumption in the early centuries that if someone was born with an infirmity or a sickness or a, an ailment, that it was because of sin. But Jesus answered and said, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And all of that to say that sometimes God reveals his glory and shows his power in, in stronger ways through sickness and through infirmity than he does through wholeness. I think of people like Johnny Erickson Tata, who has prayed repeatedly over the last 30, 40 years that God would heal her, and God has not chosen to heal her physically, and yet her ministry has not lacked in impact. Uh, She's had a tremendous impact upon the world through her weakness because people see God's strength perfected. And so all of this to say that God does heal, and we believe that he can heal, and we are challenged and charged and commanded to pray in faith with faith, not knowing what the outcome will be, but knowing that it's possible. Many look at that John 9 passage and say, well, of course it's God's will that everybody be healed because God went on to heal that blind person. But the blind person, as well as anybody else in the New Testament that got healed, take even the paralytic who had been sitting next to the pool of Siloam for some 30 years. What about the 30 years that he sat there unhealed? You know, God does eventually heal people. I, I Believe me, I prayed for, heal for healing for my father-in-law until the day that he died. And I thought God would answer. And God didn't. But he's perfectly healed now in the presence of the Lord. And we need to understand also that healing is not only limited to this life. It also has to do with the life to come. Sometimes perfect healing will never be realized in this life. And so God may choose to heal people at certain points. And my challenge and my my admonition to you would be, if you've prayed for something and God hasn't answered you, don't ever stop. Don't stop until your last breath, because you never know when he will choose to heal. But that's once we pray, it's in his hands. It's in his sovereign hands. As one theologian put it, in essence, faith, forgiveness, and healing are all three dispensations of the grace of God. This implies that the relations between these three are not governed by the law of causality, but by the will and intention of God. What's he saying there? He's saying there's no law of causality. It's not that I say the magical words and God is obligated to do whatever he does. Healing and forgiveness and faith are dispensations of grace. And we do these things knowing that ultimately we leave it up to the will and the intention of God. And we do those things knowing that God is a good God and that he has good plans for us. 
And that's a good peace of mind, knowing that it's in his hands. Well, verse 16 in our passage shifts from James addressing the elders to him addressing all believers in general. And reminding us again that the power to heal is not in, invested in the office or the title of pastor or elder, but rather it's invested in the very prayer itself, the prayer that is offered in faith. And again, while it's appropriate that those charged with the spiritual oversight of the church should be called to intercede on a regular basis for those who are seriously ill, James, apart from this, is saying that all believers have this privilege and this responsibility of praying for healing. So that applies to every single one of us today. All of us are commanded to pray for healing. All of us are commanded to anoint the sick with oil. And to believe that God can work a miracle at any time. When it says the prayer of a righteous person availeth much or is, is effective, it's not talking about that super saint, that elder or that pastor or that Billy Graham or that Mother Teresa. It's talking about any believer who has been forgiven by God through Christ. That is the righteousness with which we approach the Father in prayer. Not any righteousness of our own, but that which comes from a relationship with God through Jesus. And James wants to make it abundantly clear that this, this power of prayer, this privilege of prayer, is a powerful weapon in the hands of even the most humblest of the saints. It doesn't require a super saint to wield it effectively. As he talks about Elijah in verses 17 and 18, again, his point is not, well, Elijah was one of the most powerful men who ever died, and he was so righteous that he was taken to, chair, to heaven in a chariot of fire. None of those things are what he's drawing the analogy. He's not talking about his prophetic endowment or his unique place in history, but rather exactly what he says in the text. Elijah was a man just like us. And all of the prophets and all of the, the superheroes in the Bible that we lift up as larger than life were just humans. But God chose to work through them because they were obedient, because they were faithful, because they were surrendered. And the message is that God can work through you as well, through your faith, through your obedience, through your yieldedness. Well, finally, in verses 19 and 20, James encourages the church, to bring back the person who has wandered from the truth. And he's not talking about truth like a certain doctrine that they've departed from, but the entirety of truth, the truth that, that revolves around the gospel, the truth that needs to be lived out in our lives and not just believed or uttered from our lips. And since James suggests in verse 20 that the wandering Christian is saved from from death, which I believe he's talking about spiritual death, the wandering seems to involve apostasy. And apostasy is, is bailing from your faith, um, denying your faith, uh, walking away from your belief in Jesus Christ. And uh, that's really the sin of blasphemy, that, that uh, the, the unforgivable sin, that Jesus Christ's death on the cross is not sufficient to cover our sin. And we deny that we walk away from that. And we say there's other options to life and to eternity. And that's the sin of apostasy as well, leaving all of that behind. And, and so that phrase, bring back, it can, return, it can refer to a person who is turning from their sinful ways and converting to Christ for the first time. But the majority of the time, it signifies 
one who has made a profession of faith, one who has identified themselves with the Christian community and then walked away from that. And James is saying that there is an amazing blessing in, in bringing a person like that back into fellowship with the church, back into community. And the salvation and all the effects are not for the person who does that. Many have taken that, well, if I do enough of that, I'll earn my own Nowhere in Scripture does it say that you earn your salvation by turning people back to the Lord. It's on an individual basis. The, the life that's saved refers to the person who's brought back because they're saved from spiritual death, which is the worst death of all, which is alienation and separation from God and from His presence. Well, I want to draw some application as we close today. There's a lot that we've talked about. And I would say that the last point on your outline, which is to believe, the last command to believe, is really paramount. It's essential to everything that we've talked about today. Because if you don't believe, you'll never pray. That's why I love Hebrews 11.6. It says that the person who comes to God must first of all believe that he is, that he exists. And secondly, that he's the rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. You're not going to pray if you don't believe that God exists. And you're also not going to pray if you don't believe that He's a loving and all-powerful God who wants to heal and wants to do good things for His children. That He wants to reward the one who diligently seeks Him. That's our motivation for praying. My own experience this last week is that God oftentimes teaches me the very thing that I'm preaching. And uh, the staff went to Palm Springs this week. We had a retreat there, which was some great teaching and worship and part of my licensing and credentialing for the missionary church. Even though we're a non-denominational church, back in 1996, I was licensed and ordained in the Missionary Church International. And I keep my credentialing every year by going to that. And so I haven't felt the need to drag our church into being a missionary church because we're good the way we are. But I have the accountability and the credentialing of a larger body that I'm accountable to each year. Well, while we were down there, I started developing gout. And I've told you I've had gout on numerous occasions. And gout are are painful crystals that deposit themselves in the joints of your body. And they, they make it like cement and they make it extremely painful to move around. It's, it's similar to shingles with the heightened sensitivity. And, and right now I have gout in my right foot. I can barely put my weight on it. And it's been that way for a week. And it's unrelated to diet. or it, I've taken medicine and I've consulted doctors. It seems to have a genetic component to it, which I inherited it from my grandfather. The only thing that recently I did that I think brought on an onset of it is I took a lot of cold medicine about a week, week and a half ago, and they've now uh, discovered that too much zinc can bring on uh, terrible bouts of gout. So I'm not taking any cold medicine in the future that has zinc. But all of this to say that I have been living this passage this week. I have been in extreme pain. I have had a hard time you know, getting around, and life doesn't slow down. you still got to go through your day. And I understand what it means to need healing. And the staff felt like what a tragedy it would be today to preach this passage and not to offer you an opportunity to come forward for healing. So I'm going to invite the worship team back up now as we close the service. And as they sing, after we've taken an offering, um, there will be elders in front. Catherine's going to come to represent the staff for any women that might want to come to her. And we're going to offer the opportunity for prayer.
uh, for healing. They're going to anoint you with oil, olive oil, not because there's anything magical about it, but because it's biblical. And we're just following in obedience, following things as God stipulated, not knowing what he will do, but knowing that we want to do what he has called us to do. And I'm going to go forward as I did in the first service, and I'm going to, I'm going to kneel for healing myself because I need it. And uh, I encourage you to come as well.